0: Welcome to Making of History, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today, I really don't want to record a podcast, I'm really dragging my feet. This entire week, I have felt like I am just robbing Peter to pay Paul. I'm trying to get my reading done, trying to take my notes, trying to record these podcasts, and I just am feeling always behind. I try to record these first thing in the morning. But this entire week, I have been recording the podcast sometime in the afternoon and staying up until 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night just reading. And the reason for this is that I slept in on Monday morning, I had some meetings, and then everything got pushed back. And I've been just trying to catch up after this one really delicious Monday morning lion. But that's not the only reason why I'm really dragging my feet recording today. The reason is that it's my birthday, and I kinda just wanna sit around and be a good, good video game boy and eat ice cream and pizza in my room and not have to work. But I have instead this kind of urgent middle-class ideal that I'm always gonna work, and I'm gonna be diligent, and I'm gonna keep my promises to myself, and that's why I'm here sitting, talking to you guys in my disembodied voice today. So I think I have to thank that middle-class Protestant work ethic for bringing me here to you guys today. So over the next couple days, I'm going to be reading and talking about work in the 18th and 19th centuries. 30 years ago, this story would be relatively simple to tell. I would tell you guys about how there was this traditional world of artisan and agricultural labor in the 18th century, where you got rosy-cheeked women and buff men and proud artisans who were all working together. And then sometime in the 1770s, there was a wave of gadgets that changed everything in the Industrial Revolution. There were factories and people got exploited. And depending on your politics, I would tell you that it was very, very, very bad. But people's wages slowly increased, and they got more stuff, or if I was a bigger lefty, I would tell you guys that it was really, really, really bad, and it continued to be really, really, really bad, and the capitalists took all the profit. Then I would probably tell you guys about how this new experience of working together in factories led to a unified experience of being a working person class man and how that created a radical working class politics that then I could trace through things like the Chartists and the Liberal Party and the anti Law League and then the rise of the Labour Party and I would end it right there with the origin of working class politics in the 20th century. This is an exaggeration, a caricature, but that would be how I'd probably tell the story 30 years ago. However, historians today have been moving away from this narrative in a ton of different ways. The story I'm gonna be telling you guys over the next couple days is more than just factories change everything. Part of this comes from the realization that the leading industries like textiles and iron that were dominated by factory production were actually relatively minor when you looked at how big of a proportion of people they actually employed. Hand industries, craft industries remain super important, even right in the smack bang middle of the Industrial Revolution. And what I'll be talking to you guys today about is about how this image of strong working men who created working class politics is at best a partial story because labor in the Industrial Revolution was never just about men exactly in the same way as I described to you a couple days ago, that what it meant to be middle class was always gendered. Today, I'm going to be telling you guys what it meant to be a laborer was always gendered. So we're going to be talking today about women and women in the Industrial Revolution. So I want to just tell you guys why I think this is so important. One reason is political, and that it's women's work is often invisible. Even today, women's work is often invisible. Women spend a greater proportion of their waking hours on housework, on domestic chores, on caring for children, and this is unpaid, undervalued, and it just kind of goes by as the expected thing. And part of the thing that historians do by telling stories about the past is that we change the stories that we tell about the present. We help us focus on different things by seeing how they were important in the past and realizing how those things are important for our lives today. So part of this opening with women's work is to emphasize that half of the population the women were always working that they were always in the center of the story of how things were made and consumed and how people were raised and educated and kept clean and healthy and safe the other motivation for opening with women's work is that women were actually at the bleeding edge of the changes that new forms of industry had on people. It was women who lost the most when the economy restructured and forms of customary employment like gleaning changed. It was women who were employed first by factory owners in their quest for cheap labor. It was women who, when the labor movement started, were the first people to be shut out extensively from working in particular industries for their own good. It was women who kept the system running by keeping the houses clean, the people fed, the clothes washed and made, and the children born. And some people think that it was the demand of new kinds of clothes and objects by women in the household that spurred the industrious revolution of the early 18th century that got the whole ball rolling in the first place. One of the big changes that I want to point out is how women's work changed as people move from the country to the city. The big headline story of these 200 years from 1700 to 1900 is that people moved away from agriculture and into manufacturing, and they moved away from the country and into the city. And this had great effects on women. Why? Because women, in part, because their working lives were interrupted with childcare and pregnancy and breastfeeding and all of that, they often did not have a single job. Instead, they would help out in uh, the household at whatever particular industry was happening. The household, like say, there was a huge uh, spinning industry where women at home would spin wool by hand. Uh, It often took 10 to 40 people spinning to get enough spun wool for a single weaver to work with. And so in the 18th century, in the early 18th century, before we have this wave of gadgets, you have to imagine that in farmhouses all across Britain, there were women who, as they were taking care of the children and hanging out and cooking and doing everything else, were also spinning wool. But as the employment structure changed, these kinds of intermittent and often informal forms of labor and employment were ripped out from under women. Another example of this is gleaning. Uh, The idea was, was that after the harvest happened in the countryside, people who were poor could go through the fields and just collect whatever had been left behind. And in the 18th century with agricultural improvements, gleaning was increasingly something that people were barred from doing. Another big change is the enclosure of the commons. We haven't talked about this that much, but it's incredibly important for the agricultural history of Britain in the 18th century. The idea was, back in the day, there were these lands that were common lands. And whoever wanted to could, you know, run a cow over them or, you know, grow a patch of garden vegetables or, you know, something like that. This was incredibly important for poor women because this was the place where they could keep, uh, say, a cow for making cheese and butter, which could help with garnishing wages when there wasn't enough work to do otherwise well in the 18th century capitalist agriculture swooped in and slowly over the entire country enclosed the commons they took the commons away they put up hedgerows so that people couldn't get in there and they improved them and grew more stuff on them as part of improving them they also kicked off all the people they kicked off all those poor poor women who were having cows on the commons so that they could get butter and cheese um, this is not new, by the way. This process of women being kicked out of, a, of of particular industries when they get capitalist enough, when they get enough profit behind them, is totally not tuned, uh, not new. It happened in the 15th century with the change from women at home brewing beer to brewing being a much more larger, capital-intensive industry dominated by male brewers. So, As women and men moved away from the country and into the city, women's work changed as well. In cities like London, there was a strong artisan tradition. There was this process by which men would get apprenticed to particular trades, then they'd work up to journeymen, maybe they'd tramp around and work in in, uh, 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 shops for a couple years, then they would become masters, set up their own shops, and get married. Well, this stuff started to break down in the late 18th century as increasingly large numbers of journeymen were not able to get. Married, And so there was this kind of plebeian culture of unmarried journeymen who did the sort of things that you imagine when you think of radical working class people. They were violent. They hung out drinking with one another. They had these strong bonds of fraternity. They would go out whoring and dancing and doing all of those great things that you imagine working class people in the 18th century doing. And women were a huge part of this. Women were also part of this plebeian working class public. They would go out drinking with the artisan men. But these artisans were very, very clear to shut out women from the workplace. Women could help out with the crappier and lower paid parts of work done at home, but they were not to be engaged in the actual work of the artisans. And this led to huge problems with, with, with uh, uh, men and women over this time. Uh, the person who's written the most about this, uh, Anna Clark, suggested in the early uh, 19th century, there was a sexual crisis amongst the working classes. There were early rates of pregnancy, extremely high rates of pregnancy at marriage, which suggests, you know, shotgun weddings, high bastardry rates, bigamy, prostitution, wife beating. There were constant frictions about men and women in public dealing with the relations between one another. And this led to women being forced into particular trades and forced into making less money in those trades, right? Up in the north, in the textile industry, it was different. There was a stronger tradition of men and women working together in the home. And so when factories came online, there was a stronger sense of community between men and women within the factory. But the big question is why? Why were men and women divided in employment? And why were women paid less than men? There's two big sets of explanations ideology, and biology. The ideology set of explanations suggests that it was all about cultural beliefs about what men and women were fit to do. Men were fit to work. They were fit to employ their skills. They were fit to use their minds to push order onto society. Women were fit to take care of the home, and when they left the home, to do work, this was either just to supplement wages, which meant that they could get paid less, or it was as part of a wider pattern of immorality, like prostitution and drunkenness, and thus women's labor was denigrated. This denigration of female labor, ideologically, allowed devious capitalists to offer unfair wages to women and children. This had the dual effect of both making goods ever cheaper and also further demeaning female labor. So remember, this this ties in with our ideas of the male breadwinner that we discussed when we talked about middle-class people, right? These same ideals of men making enough money to support women at home when transferred to the working class led to there being a diminution of female labor because it was assumed that female labor was always supplemental, that there would always be a strong man or should always be a strong man who could bring home the bread every day. The second set of explanations for different rates of pay and different patterns of of wages for men and women is biology. And this comes mostly from a scholar named Joyce Burnett. And the idea is, is that we can adequately explain a lot of gender segmentation by appealing to the differences in average strengths of men and women and the fact that women often had to drop out of the workforce for taking care of children. Now, it's important to note that even in the middle of the Industrial Revolution, even when we have this wave of gadgets that is changing the way that people worked, a lot of this work required strength. It required lifting things and pushing things. Uh, Something like the uh, cotton mule that we've discussed today, the really, really big ones with like 500 spindles required immense amounts of strength. You needed young, strong men to work them. Older men could not work these large mules, and they were paid less. Women tended not to be able to use the mules, although of course some women could furthermore women often dropped out of the labor force for taking care of children because you know once they got pregnant and breastfed they had to spend more time taking care of the kids than they could working in the factory and these two explanations according to burnett are enough to explain the differences in wages and sectoral employment without even appealing to ideology. The ideology for her comes afterwards. It comes after people are actually working, that people start to explain it. For her, there's a bunch of explanations for this. Uh, Once certain industries require less actual raw strength, then women start to fall into them. Furthermore, you get situations where people evince some sort of ideological commitment against female labor, and then at the same time, they are employing a ton of women. This, for her, suggests that ideology is just an epiphenomenon of the material problems. And the big thing there, for her, is that the Industrial Revolution, by chance, denigrated the sort of Hand labor that women were really good at. Women had been spending a lot of their time doing stuff like lace making and weaving and spinning. That were the things that these new wave of gadgets replaced. Thanks very much for joining me on this special birthday episode of Making a Historian. I have to thank Jonathan Lear for giving us the music and Duncan Barton for giving us the image. If you liked us, rate us and review us on iTunes, share us with your friends. If you're curious, you can find us at historian.live, and we also have a Facebook page. Thanks very much, guys, and I'll see you guys tomorrow, when hopefully I will not be as burdened by overwork and birthdays. Thanks very much.